Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So these five factors, faith, energy, mindfulness, samadhi or intimacy, and wisdom or love, all conspire to um, transfigure who we are. Not because we need to become somebody, but because we forget. Not because we've sinned. Not because we're not whole. But because we forget that we're all intimately connected with everything. And because of the forgetting we practice. Not because we're incomplete. And life is very mysterious. And you can't figure out a mystery. You can't figure it out. The mind has limits. And when you recognize that it's not about figuring it out, then yoga becomes a regenerative force, a generative practice that gives a lot of life because we can hold our doubt and our faith together with energy. We don't have to always make up our mind about everything. And so I hope that uh, these five factors or what are often called powers of mind um, can become a blueprint for our weekend this weekend where we're going to alternate between uh, meditation practice, asana practice, pranayama practice, and some discussion and inquiry together as a group and partners and so on. So, uh, so we can explore what uh, a mature yoga practice might be in this world at this time with these certain kinds of suffering happening around us and in us in our rivers and our communities and our friendships and our economy. So that the practice can address all these pieces and not just be about a kind of physical prowess. That's so easy to get caught up in. I get my foot behind my head, I'll be happy. <laughs> 
And that means the person who uh, was practicing five years ago and is now in a wheelchair or a hospital bed can't get enlightened. So, so that way of thinking about practice doesn't make any sense. And uh, so what does? And this is what I'd like to explore this weekend. So you've heard me speak now, you know, for I don't know how long, too long. I've heard it, the words for a while. So now I'd like to just open it up, maybe, if there are any comments or questions that anybody would like to um, offer. And they don't have to be clever. <laughs> um, I, I do have a question. And um, it's about translation of some of these terms. And um, I, I mean, I've sort of grappled a bit with the Tanjali and me, that sort of, um, anyway. When I'm just very curious about the fluidity of your translation of these uh -huh. terms. Yeah. And I know that. Um, it appears to me that you are really looking at each one of these terms, their translation, and finding what feels real about it now in these times. Yes. And in this world that we live in now. Yes. And I have great respect and, um, uh, and, a, and a feeling for the sensitivity that you bring to that. Uh -huh. And I also... Um, I mean, like looking at the word smithy and uh -huh. looking at the traditional translations of that, of mm -hmm. memory. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I'm just, it's confusing to me. Yes. Um, it's very confusing yeah. to me to look at the traditional translations, yeah. to hear what you're saying, and yeah. kind of try to find yeah. what feels right and real to me about sure. that. Sure. And, I mean, also just how it moves the, I mean, it moves the meaning of Patanjali all over the map. Mm -hmm. If you look at Smithy as memory, then memory brings you to, to sit somewhere in the past. You know, uh -huh. It has that connotation. Yeah. Whereas what you describe as mindfulness or yes. remembering mm -hmm. brings you to the and, yes. And then there's the whole issue of time and all of that, but we won't, anyway. I mean, yeah. that's, that's just kind well, of my mind. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I have similar thoughts. You know, I, I mean, for those of you that have studied with me for a few years who are in here, you know that, you know, I change translations of terms every couple months. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, and that's uh, to keep it alive. Mm -hmm. Because some phases in my practice, one memory might really make sense. And then a little while later, it might, that might not make sense anymore. And I think that's what's so wonderful if you're not a fundamentalist. And unfortunately, with Patanjali, most of the translators into English are academics and are not practitioners. And so you read it, and after a while, especially when you get into some of the discussions around samadhi, it's like, yeah, I mean, you, you can kind of, I can kind of feel that this person has not necessarily actually experienced what they're translating. And um, I think some academics would have a very hard time with everything I've said tonight. Um, and some would not, but some would. 
um, because I feel like yoga is only alive and any spiritual tradition is only alive right now if it's speaking to contemporary forms of discontent. And if it's not, the buildings go empty and um, you know the practice doesn't have anything to say. And I think now when our ecological um, imbalances are so profound and right in all of our faces, and yet, you know, here we are in Wisconsin where, you know, unemployment is very high and the fact of the recession is uh, very real for so much of the population. Here we are trying to rescue an economic system that just created this collapse and setting ourselves up. And so even in the face of these imbalances, we're still tied to a kind of ideological position around uh, greed and capital. That doesn't make any rational sense at all. Um, and yet we continue to be motivated by this self-interest. So I think if yoga doesn't have something to say about that now, then who cares about this practice? I mean, how is it going to help us work with our greed and our self-interest and our anger when we don't get what we want? Or when we get what we want, but can't recognize it. So, I th and this is sort of leads a little bit into what the next book is about, is trying to actually take these terms and apply them to put them to work on contemporary global issues. Because otherwise, yoga is going to be left in the dust because it's not going to be a practice that has anything to say about contemporary forms of suffering. And Buddhism is the same way. You know, I think some of the leading Buddhist teachers right now are addressing some of these issues like David Loy and Stephen Batchelor and Bernie Glassman and Thich Nhat Hanh and so many people talking about interdependence from an ecological and economic perspective that's so necessary. But when any tradition leaves one continent and goes to another continent, it's changed by the culture it meets. And I've never lived in India for long enough, like hundreds of years, to really know what the tradition is. I don't know what it is. I don't even know if that's true. I don't even know what that means, tradition. I mean, people talk about the tradition of sun salutations. Well, there's no historical documentation of sun salutations more than like 70 years. So, so the traditional sun salutation, I don't know. <laughs> Jumping back. Um, well, how old is like Iyengar yoga? 40 years old, <laughs> 50 years old. It's like not so traditional, you know? It's a, it's a way of branding, actually. So here you can talk about the traditional way of the triangle. <laughs> but like you can't do that in India, right? It's traditional here because it's like a good bedtime story. So I'm not, you know, as many of you know who have practiced with me, I'm really interested in form. But I'm a little weary of when we talk about the traditional interpretation. So I don't know what that means. The whole point of a text and why it stays alive is it's not stuck just in tradition. So that the tradition comes alive now.
And um, I think if somebody, I think a great PhD right now would actually be to go and look at what happened to systems like what happened to Indian Buddhism when it went to China? Like what actually was happening in China that changed Indian Buddhism? And what happened to Chan when it went to uh, Japan? And like what was happening in that? And I think we might learn a lot about what's going to happen to these to the Dharma as it comes here. Um, and uh, to me, that's tradition. The tradition is this living, self-organizing, creating um, um, rhizome uh, of practice. I think you just answered my question. You were talking about tradition, and I think you have a book out with uh, the word tradition in your title. Yeah, I don't make uh, those titles up. You don't make those titles? No, I don't get to design the covers either. <laughs> so, <laughs> so <of> course it is. <laughs> do you have any... What is your definition of tradition with regards to entitlement in this book? What you just said, that tradition is not really what we think of it as tradition. It's more of a dynamic, contemporary yeah. word. Well, yes and no. I mean, to defend the title, I wanted to talk about the inner tradition of yoga to kind of, and some of you will see this as we start to practice asana, to get away from the contemporary obsession with external geometric approaches to yoga poses, where it's about, you know, this is the, this is the universal way this pose is practiced, and everybody should practice it like that. That's the final form of the pose. And you have like the poster, you know, on your fridge or whatever. And um, you try to, you know, look like Patricia Walden every day or something, you know. <laughs> and the inner tradition is trying to poke at that a little bit and talk about how there's a very deep internal practice underneath um, the superficial form Hatha Yoga is taking these days. And I wanted to write about that. And the second book is actually a response to the first book, which is, well, what's the external tradition that rethinking the word external as not just being about physical culture, but about rivers, fly fishing. Isn't that what you do around here? Fly fishing. When I came in, like every other word from Chanel is fly. You can fly fish there, people fly fish there. <laughs> When you get tired, you can go to the Sugar River, fly fish there. Could you say a little more about your idea of form in asana and how um, yeah. I personally think of it as something that's fairly fluid and individual to each yeah. person, but I'm wondering yeah. what you think. Well, yes, it's fluid and individual, and there's form. And the form is going to look different in every fluid individual. But um, the way I teach asana is pretty formal. And what I like is to offer technique. And then people can take that technique into their practice. So in Toronto, I only teach one lead class every week. And I expect everybody has a daily practice that they do by themselves or with friends. Um, and I don't like people relying on the lead class. So the lead class is there every week for people to take principles 
that they can then put to work in their own practice, whatever that might be. So on Sunday, if you leave trying to practice exactly like how we did it in class, it's not really the intention. The intention is more to learn some thing about how to gaze and how to breathe and how to experience the naturally occurring bandhas in the pelvic floor and in the vocal diaphragm, respiratory system, so that um, there are places where the mind can rest in the flow of the yoga poses so that it's um, alive and concentrated. Um, and um, that's what we do over and over again, class after class, year after year. Um, but I'm not promoting a system of yoga, if that makes any sense. It does. I guess I'm thinking that often I know that there are people who are married to an idea of this is the way to do this particular posture. Yeah. They try very hard to put themselves into a particular position. Yeah. And it's difficult to get the idea that it's organic and it comes from inside of sure. you. It's not me or yourself yeah. into. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you can go too far in either extreme. And I think the phase of having some clear ideas of what the pose can be can actually be really helpful. If there's not too much ego in there, um, or if there's ego in there, that can be your particular path for working that out. Or if there's competitiveness in there, then, you know, don't stop. Like, get competitive. Practice that way for a while. Get to know competitive, I am going to look like Sharon Gannon in this pose. And like, really get to know that. Dress like her, wear the eyeliner, everything. And, um, and then give that up. Because I think it's too, it's so easy to just say, oh, you know, just see what occurs and flows. And I think there's a place for that. And there's a place for the form. And there can be too much addiction to form where we then have to drop it also. Um, but I think there's phases in our practice where we need both those things. Yeah. I think it's good not to pick a side. Yeah. I was reading in the book about the Kliyas and the Koshas and how yeah. the Koshas support the Kliyas. The Kleshas. Yes. See? Yeah. Um, and how Hatabia always said that uh -huh. was the poisons of the heart. Yeah. Can you kind of connect that to the imbalance that we're all seeing and experiencing? Yeah. Maybe as a dynamic human imbalance. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, one of the things that I focus on in the inner tradition of yoga is uh, the way that Patanjali teaches uh, the kleshas and the way that Patabi Joyce talked about the kleshas as really the cure for the way our hearts are poisoned. And... Um, You know, the core teaching of the kleshas, and you know, we don't have time to go through all the kleshas, but I assume you've all read the book a few times. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the core teaching of the kleshas is that the thing that we're all most addicted to 
is um, our view. Having a view. Needing to have a perspective. And that the Kleshas talk about how to look at our experience in such a way where we can see how we're clinging to a viewpoint. Now, how that ties into contemporary imbalances in the world, I hope is obvious. I mean, just look at the news every day, and what you see is like this view and that view, hammering away at each other. And we don't see it. We don't see it. And then we have our view about that, and we don't see it. You know, we don't. We have our worldview about. You know, there's a, the saying. There's two kinds of people: people who think there are two kinds of people, and people who don't. <laughs> you know. And th- and so we're going to explore the clashes this weekend, exactly in the way you're asking, to to start to poke a little bit at the way we cling to view, whatever that view is of self, of other, of future lives, past lives, God, whatever your view is, there's nothing wrong with having a view. It's really good to have a view. Nothing worse than hanging out with people who are... You see this a lot in, like, novice meditators. They're so free, they have no view. So you're like, so, where do you guys want to go for dinner tonight? Well, I don't know. Let's just see where we end up. It's like, give me the menu. (laughs) So you want to have a view. The problem is not having a view. It's when you don't see your viewpoint as a viewpoint. And that's the tie-in to some of the contemporary issues. And I think that that is the place where, you know, I hope that in the next century this part of yoga psychology can enter Western philosophical and um, psychological discourse, intellectual discourse on this point. Because I think like where we've ended up is like, it's almost together, like, you know, Derrida and Lacan and all these people would kind of love this idea of the self being so elastic and so on. But the piece that yoga offers is that you can't separate letting go of your viewpoint and ethics. They can't be separated. And in postmodern philosophy, we don't really know how to deal with ethics so well. And um, in Western psychology, and especially in psychoanalysis or in clinical psychology, we never talk about ethics. I mean, we talk about professional ethics, like don't sleep with your clients and steal their money and things like that. But we never talk about how someone's way of life, their, their ethical commitments, um, affect their health and their well-being. So that, there's a whole piece there that's really interesting. Yeah. So, and, and it's related to the clashes in terms of self-image. But we'll, we'll do more of that over the weekend. Okay. I don't want to give it all away. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I really appreciated when you were Dharma talk. It really uh-huh. talked to me on a lot of different levels. Uh-huh. Um, 
I have one bump in the road, and let yeah. me see if I can okay. smooth it out a little bit. Um, and that's faith. Yeah. Um, and it probably has to do in part with my background. I was raised a Roman Catholic, uh -huh. um, trained as a scientist, um, and just naturally skeptical of, of most things. Yeah. Um, so it seemed like two, three, four, and five uh -huh. are manifestations of the same thing. Yeah. Energy, mindfulness, samadhi, and wisdom uh -huh. are all really looking at the same thing, but from slightly different angles. Yes. Mm -hmm. Faith is sort of like that, it's not part of that. Um, and I think of faith as a, as a, uh, a set of beliefs that one adheres to. If one is in a religious tradition, it's their canon. Mm -hmm. um, and it, to me, doesn't seem to fit real well. I'm more in yeah. the follow of Thich Nhat Hanh, but uh -huh. read maybe too much Christian Murdy, so uh, I'm really not... It, to me, my practice is not bound by faith. Yes. But I'll, let me give a different word and see what you think of yes. this. And that is knowing. Uh -huh. um, so if I look at someone like the Dalai Lama uh -huh. or Thich Nhat Hanh or other people that really have deep spiritual practices, yeah. um, I would like to have be like them, you know, uh, particularly the, the Dalai Lama who was, just seemed so happy and was in the New York Times article last week, someone asked him, how can you be so happy with all these horrible things going on in Tibet? He said, oh, it's my profession. <laughs> yeah. That as a Buddhist, that's what it's about. Right. But to me, that's not a, that's a knowing. Uh -huh. um, just like the Dharma um, and Buddha's teachings is not so much, it's not set on a whole set of beliefs, yeah. it just makes sense. Things constantly change. There are sources of our suffering. All of this is, to me, so does the word knowing, because to me, yeah. if that first word is knowing, then all five are this, just different views yes. of the same thing. But if it's faith, and again, it's probably in part because of my weird you know, schizophrenic background, yeah. um, but faith then doesn't make it holistic. But knowing does. I don't know if I've expressed it well. I, I think you expressed it really clearly. Um, the first part I think you expressed clearly is that um, faith has baggage in the way we use that word in English. And that's why I was trying to use the word trust and confidence. Because um, faith might not mean what you think it means, or might not have meant what you think it meant, um, as a translation of Shraddha for Patanjali, mm -hmm. who didn't know anything about the Roman Catholic mm -hmm. tradition. So just to watch how we also do that with these words, which is why we need to put them in the compost sometimes for a while. Mm -hmm. um, but I think more importantly, if you took this list of five and you bent the last piece, uh, knowing before knowing, back around into faith, so that it was actually a circle, then I think we'd be closer to what you're, you're pointing at. I also think it's possible to do this practice and have a deep kind of knowing that you could call faith without having a belief system. Mm 
And um, I think one of the things that's attractive to people in the intermediate phase of their yoga practice, this means yoga practitioners who've been going to like hatha yoga classes, they've done their teacher training, and then they feel like there's something more to learn because they know something, because they are having direct access to present experience without any kind of theological viewpoint yet. They haven't made a commitment yet to a belief system, yet something, they feel something. And um, that's a kind of faith, but not in the way we normally think of faith, because it's not necessarily committing to the scaffolding yet. So um, I really like what you said. I, I think you expressed it really, really clearly. And I would also say, for somebody who really has faith in a particular belief system, um, there's a way that these same five principles can really work. Because um, that smirky piece of mindfulness helps us show what parts of our belief system are in line with the way the world is, and what parts are really grand superimpositions. And that's the nice thing about mindfulness, is it kind of cuts through, which is what's so appealing about Thich Nhat Hanh, for example, is that's the entryway for him, it's mindfulness. Somebody else? We have a few more minutes. You can feel the question bubbling. Do ethics are limited to humans? Do animals have, I'm just thinking about the connection we have to nature. We are that bird and that fox. Yes. That fox kills for its Yeah. You know, um, of course, I guess we do, some people do animals as well. Um, yeah. I don't know, I just went off on eight different tangents, so. Uh, let me try and follow, okay? Well, so, our ethics. Are ethics just a human endeavor? Yes. You know, the birds are not gathered in a room, um, you know, exploring their place, and they're just, you know, birding. And so I think it's important for us to recognize that, yes, it's a human endeavor, and it has to be a constantly changing field, because ethics are not... Um, like commandments. You know, the first ethical teaching in yoga is ahimsa, which means nonviolence, in body, speech, and mind. And what I always love about the word ahimsa is it's a negative word. It's nonviolence, which presupposes that there's going to be violence. So it's starting off not as peace, but rather as there is going to be violence in your actions of your body, in the actions of your speech, and in the activity of your mind. There's going to be violence. So the practice is to undertake nonviolence as a way of being, to become nonviolence, but not to become peace. You see, that's too idealistic. And I love this. I love that the term is nonviolence. 
Not having the intention to cause injury would be the most accurate translation, which presupposes injury. Um, you are going to kill. There's so many ways we kill. We um, kill relationships because we can't listen. We kill um, our bodies because we don't take care of ourselves. We kill parts of our community because we can't accept people around us who um, are not producing and consuming. So that's part of your practice in your, in your community is this whole psychological aspect because I can say, you know, for years, you know, my fifth decade now, it's been at least the last three that yeah. I have had awareness and consciousness about that which serves my health and my well-being and that which does not. And yes. knowing it for three decades hasn't necessarily yes. changed that. You know, so that question then comes down to me, what is the psychology? What is the whatever? Yes. Is it psychology <coughs> around yes. that... This, well, it's, it feels very dysfunctional. Yeah. It feels harmful. Yes. I mean, it feels violent. Yes. And so More practices required. Because, for sure, I mean, we all have deep patterns that maybe even sometimes we hope we're going to overcome this life, but maybe not. And then we judge other people who aren't. I mean, isn't it hard to see somebody close to you who has some kind of addiction that's hurting people around them, and it's like, whoa, they're still doing it, you know? And how to love them. And to watch that karma burn itself out. And it might not happen for them in the way you think it should happen. Because you have an idea, especially if you're a therapist, of how they can change or a parent or a sibling. And uh, sometimes we also have to step back a little bit from that clinging. And um, also in our, ourselves, you know, I mean, if you really want to serve others, you also have to take care of yourself. You have a self. Everybody hear that? Buddhists, you have one. You have a self, okay? It's real. It's really real. It's not real in the way you think it's real, but it, it functions. And you have to take care of yourself. You have needs. People have needs. In relationships, we're all in relationship. We have needs. We need, you know, affection. We need tenderness. We need for people to listen. And I think sometimes we have this idea in spiritual practice, oh, I have no needs. You know, I'm not even a self anymore. And then you watch how that backfires over a long arc. And so I think we have to practice in a very strong way to see through what the self is. And we have to take care of the self. Both. Equal. And most books you read are kind of about breaking through the self. Especially Krishnamurti. Um, and you really also have to take care of it, even though it doesn't exist. <laughs>
ontologically. <laughs> so, are you here for the whole weekend? Probably, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, you know, this is what we're going to check out. Yeah. And then convert you to the cult. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming, and I can hang around for a few more minutes if you want me to sign books or things like that. Um, it's, you know, it's so wonderful coming to a town that I haven't been and having people here who I know, familiar faces. It's really lovely. And um, I hope that over the weekend, um, because you know we're not a huge group, and I hope that we can practice in a way where we can get to know each other um, and also really explore what this practice is and inquire together about how you can develop a practice that will help you serve. Because we're most happy when we're helping others. We're most happy when we're helping others. And if we help others and we don't take care of ourselves, it's not really serving. And um, so I, I want to help you cultivate a practice that um, is going to work for you in your life so you can wake up, to wake up from your um, habits of self-centeredness and all of the stuff that comes with that so we can deal with our self-centeredness. And um, uh, I hope we do this as a kind of community for the next few days. So, namaste. Thank you. Namaste.